Galad. Lauren. Galad, normally I would only bring you on the show to talk about tech policy or cheese, but Mike is out this week, so here we are. I'm very honored to be the permanent new co-host of this podcast. (sighs) We're not telling Mike until he gets back, so let's just keep that between us. Done. Hey everyone, it's time for Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good, I'm a senior writer at Wired, and as I mentioned, Michael Colori is out this week. But I am not alone. Filling in for my co-host is Wired's politics writer and cheese enthusiast, Galad Edelman, who's joining from Washington, D.C. Hi again, Galad. Hey, Lauren. We're also joined this week by Wired senior writer Kate Nibbs, who I believe is coming on the show for the first time. Is that right, Kate? Yes, I'm very excited to finally be here. I'm so excited to have you on, and you are joining us from New York City. So I guess a good way to start this show would just be to say WTF NFTs, because that's what we're talking about today. So if you've spent any time on the internet in recent weeks, you've probably seen people talking about NFTs, which stands for non-fungible tokens, basically digital assets. So when you think of digital media, you probably think of something like a YouTube video or a meme, right? Something you can access for free anytime you want. But some relatively new technologies are being used to make pieces of digital media sellable. And therefore, it's created a market for them, like a digital collector's item. So we're going to get into the specifics of how they work throughout this episode. But This whole concept has inspired some interesting conversations about what constitutes art online. And it has also inspired some stunts, like the one our friend Kate here did. So Kate, tell us about how you sold your tweet this week. So I am as surprised as anyone that I sold my tweet because I I put a tweet up for sale using this service called Valuables by Scent. And It is a platform specifically designed for people to sell their tweets as NFTs. I just put it up out of curiosity because I wanted to see how the platform worked. And initially, no one bought my tweet. One of my friends Venmoed me 20 cents as a joke, and that was it. And so I thought that it was a failed experiment. Very quickly tell us what the tweet said. The tweet that I put up for sale said this tweet is worth $10. (laughs) Because I wanted to see if anyone would buy it for $10. Okay. They didn't. Yes. Um, But even though no one bought my tweet, I still thought that the concept um, of being able to sell tweets as NFTs was interesting enough to look into. So I went through the ledger that Valuables has on its website of tweets that have been bought and sold. And I started reaching out to people who had bought and sold tweets. And I I reached out to someone and asked them why they had uh, put an offer on a tweet that actually one of my friends had tweeted. And I just noticed that someone was trying to buy her tweet for $100. And the person didn't respond, but they offered to buy one of my tweets for $500. And I was just so surprised and confused by why they would want to do that. And also, if I'm being honest, a little... Uh, intrigued about making money from something that I did for free that I clicked accept. And then I didn't actually get 500 US dollars. Like there's there's a few things that I, I want to clear up. Tweets are bought and sold um, in Ethereum. So I got 0.3 Ether. And when I signed up for this valuables platform, I had to sign up for a browser extension cryptocurrency wallet. And that's where the money went into. 
So if I was to actually get $500, it, it's actually worth $530 now. So because Ethereum is so uh, volatile, I would have to transfer the money from that cryptocurrency wallet to Coinbase or something and then sell it. Um, so that is what the process was like. I asked the person why they bought my tweet and they did not respond. So I'm still confused about their motivations. Um, but now I have cryptocurrency for tweeting something and I actually still own the tweet and we can get into the specifics of how like that actually works later if you want. That's kind of what I was wondering. So when the person bought it from you, they received some kind of code that indicated that was the original tweet, right? It wasn't, was it like a, it was like a JPEG of your tweet snapped from twitter.com? They didn't even get a JPEG. So this, um, this specific platform is a little bit controversial because it doesn't tokenize the tweet onto the Ethereum blockchain itself. Some NFT art gets tokenized onto the blockchain and you would receive that token in your wallet. The way valuables specifically works is that the token only exists on its platform. So they didn't actually buy my tweet. They literally just bought a certificate that says they own my tweet that exists only on this specific platform. Uh, I'll just sort of say what every listener I'm sure is thinking, which is this is completely insane. <laughs> so, Kate, can you just tell us what this tweet said, by the way? Uh, it said, I, it said, tired grifters, scammers, wired uh, rascals and rapscallions. I as believe. you know, as you know, I enjoyed this tweet. We DM'd about it. Um, <laughs> rapscallion is one of my hip hop aliases. Um, How many other hip hop aliases do you have? Uh, I don't have them all in one place, but um, Stank Williams, Uncle Baby. I have several. Uh, okay, this is we're gonna do a whole other podcast <laughs> on this at some point. The problem is I don't have to this. I don't have any one that I think should be my main rap name. But anyway, yeah, it's separate sort of separate issue. Um, I mean, like, it, it sounds, Kate, as if this person doesn't own anything. It, the only This person paid for the right to say that this person paid for the right to say that this person paid for the right. I mean, like, sort of, and we could endlessly recursively describe this transaction because it's just based on the transaction mm -hmm. itself. And so it's very self-referential. You are entirely correct. It's so silly. I don't know why anyone would really I mean I do know why people are buying these but I don't really relate to the reasons I just I'm not a collector I I don't have that impulse to just buy something to say I own it and this is truly like the purest distillation of buying something just to say you own it I saw someone compare it to um those like name a star certificates you can get for someone where you name a star after them, but you, you're obviously not actually naming a star after them. You're just buying them a certificate that says you're naming a star after them. It's that, it's that. So I have two questions for you based on what you just said. One is, I guess just fundamentally, what happens if you delete the tweet? And then the second is, you said you do understand why people are buying some NFTs, and I, I want to get into that. Why, mm -hmm. like why are they? Um, so the, the answer to your first question is simple. Nothing happens if I delete the tweet. I'm allowed to delete it. The person just now has a certificate for ownership of a tweet that's deleted, and that's really too bad for them. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that's that. The second question of why people want to own NFTs in general and tweet NFTs 
is they either think that they're going to be able to resell them at a profit, like they are treating it like a speculative asset. That's the main reason. Or they are just trying to support tweets as art and genuinely think that it's a nice thing to do to own a little bit of of a tweet. Like I, I talked to some people who were just doing this basically to gamble and see if they could make money reselling tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did talk to people who were pretty sweet and for, you know, going on about how they just wanted to support the creators of their favorite tweets and give them some, some love and say that they believed that their tweets had deserved value and compensation. Um, see, this is why this will never affect me because all of my tweets suck. <laughs> I feel like you should maybe tweet about your all your aliases. That, yes. That might be totally forward. I just I think that there'd be some brand dilution involved in that if I if I did that. I think people would be my followers who 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 rely on me for the latest antitrust news might be a little confused. This reminds me of um an exhibit I saw at the MoMA years ago. I mean, I want to say it was back in 2010 or 2011, and this was the moment in New York where um it was the at symbol from Twitter just on a wall. And I remember joking like some of the some of the like least expensive fine art to ship because normally when art is shipped from place to place, I mean, it's an incredibly intense and expensive process to preserve that art. But if you're just actually taking a digital symbol and painting it on a wall, like what does that involve? And I still don't know this full story of like who painted the thing, the at on the wall, but um. But this is like the next level of that. This is like a fully not, no, you know, there are no like particles there, physical things we're, we're interacting with. It's just like purely digital assets. I actually saw that someone sold an NFT of that's just blank white nothing for $19,000 today. So, oh. <laughs> Okay, great. I really hope they give that to like a renter's fund or something. Me too. So we should probably also talk about the environmental impact because... Earlier this week, our colleague Greg Barber uh, published a great story about the environmental side of selling NFTs. And one of the prime examples in his story is a French artist turned climate activist who, in selling just one piece of digital art, used up the same amount of energy that he would have used in his studio for two years. So based on the folks you've talked to, I mean, how can people selling these really justify the energy costs? I think a lot of people don't think about it. Hmm. And frankly, had I thought about it more before I clicked accept, I would not have done so because the more that I've learned about what the energy costs are, the more horrified I am by this whole endeavor. Um, Kate, can you just explain where does this energy burden come from? Why is it that why, why is buying your tweet destroying the Amazon? Yeah, it's a little confusing because you think you know, if something's only happening online, how could that possibly be generating that much energy waste? But it's because Ethereum and Bitcoin are the types of blockchains that are called proof of work. And so when their cryptocurrency is being mined, it takes an incredible amount of computational power. So there is just like I I don't even know what the best visual is to describe it, but like imagine like a server farm run in top speed. You need server farms and server farms running at top speed to do the mining work that's necessary to verify the transactions in the NFT world. So 
that is where the environmental devastation comes from is the computational power issue and a lot of people who are nft enthusiasts are really banking on the fact that ethereum is planning to to move to a different kind of blockchain setup that's less environmentally detrimental and they've been planning it for years but they're still not there yet so until they get there it's going to continue to be a pretty ethically disturbing enterprise have you heard of any stories of some people who have enough money to to spend on these nfts um also perhaps like buying carbon offsets or doing other things that are supposed to be counteractive to the amount of energy they're using i haven't heard about that but i hope it's happening i'm i'm assuming that it will happen as this becomes something that more people are aware of i mean it's it has to right that people guy just sold um images at christie's for 69 million dollars this is becoming a big like part of the art world and you've got to hope that people recognize that we need to you know engage with nfts responsibly i have a better suggestion i think if people will pay for these assets for you know for for essentially arbitrary assets why not just make like carbon offset nfts what if we just turned climate friendly investments into some kind of fad speculative vehicle and so we get people pumping money and if people are pumping money into something that's something that's completely bullshit what if we just offer them the same thrill ride and potential for a big payout uh with some asset that is somehow somehow helps climate change i haven't worked out all the particulars but i think there's <laughs> mm-hmm. something there i think i think you're hired a lot cool. that sounds great to me cool all right see you guys all right, we're stick around. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about NFTs and some of the power dynamics of these digital assets. So I guess BRB for more NFTs. So you're hearing a lot of buzzwords from us today, right? NFTs, Ethereum, blockchain, they're all part of the relatively new world of digital currencies. And part of the promise of these is that they're supposed to offer decentralized solutions, right? Or more equitable access to assets, or maybe even support artists. But is that true? I kind of want to step back and maybe unpack the power dynamics of this a little bit. Uh, Kate, starting with you. I mean, you mentioned earlier that these are really speculative assets and you use the word volatile, which always jumps out at me because I tend to think that volatility ultimately does, you know, tend to benefit those who are already in positions of power or already have the money in some cases. So, so talk about like who's really, who stands to gain from all of this activity? Well, because NFTs are largely bought and sold using Ethereum, they are usually bought and sold by people who are pretty cryptocurrency savvy already. So it's a it's a very specific demographic. Um, and a lot of people who got into cryptocurrency early, like are often, you know, they're cryptocurrency startup CEOs or they're, incre- they're or they're Jack Dorsey. You know, mm-hmm. it's um, it's not like. A playing field it's not never going to be an even playing field because people who already have amassed some sort of cryptocurrency wealth have been around that world for a while and tend to fit a certain profile um and then the artists who are able to 
sell NFTs also obviously have to be some degree of crypto savvy, although a lot of the new platforms are pretty simple to use. Um, and I do want to say like the, the artists are financially benefiting from this. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that should be discounted. I think for a lot of creators, it's probably incredibly exciting to have this new way to earn a living. Um, but they are earning a living in these extremely volatile cryptocurrencies. And so they've got to be, they have to consider like whether they need, they want to leave their earnings in Ethereum or whether they want to go through the process of taking it out of Ethereum and getting actual money that they can spend. Um, So there is a knowledge barrier of entry to this world that isn't fair. Although I will say, you know, the art world also isn't like a bastion of equality either. It, It also tends to attract extremely rich speculators mm-hmm. so this isn't a this isn't unique to nft art in, in, in fact it's not this is far from limited to art uh or even even to things like your tweets that are let's say arguably art uh you know a, a really high profile example of the nft craze is something called top shot which is backed by the nba and it's sort of an nft version of of basketball cards where you buy the thing you're you're bidding to buy uh, is basically a digital, the, each top shot is a little highlight clip. And these are kind of fascinating to me because this really gets at what's what's weird about these things. Our colleague Stephen Levy also wrote about NFTs for his recent newsletter. And he basically makes the point, look, people, you know, there's all kinds of things that people collect. All collectibles have the inherent feature that their value is something of a collective illusion or delusion uh, in which you know there's diamonds have you know industrial purposes but diamonds are valuable because we all kind of agree they're valuable and the same thing is true of uh you know of art but it's also true you know of rare books whatever baseball card you know rare stamps and so you could say this is just the same thing as that but i think the, the thing that's so weird about many of these nfts is that you're paying for something that you can already access for free. That is what is so weird about it. So whether it's Kate's tweet or even these basketball highlights, if I buy a LeBron James dunk, I'm buying something that I could just go watch on YouTube. And if I'm buying, you know, like this artist, Beeple, who sold this piece, this NFT art for $69 million, like his art's really cool. I was looking at it today. It's it's not like it's got no, no worth. It's just that because it's a JPEG, you can sort of, definitionally it's like it's already available because people have to see it to bid on it and it's not even a facsimile of a painted work or a sculpted work and so even a baseball card a baseball card is a thing it is a unique thing you know if there's only 10 uh you know babe ruth rookie cards and i have all 10 no one else has them and you might say it's not a very like interesting thing right the 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 value of it still seems arbitrary but but it is a unique thing Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that a video clip that's already freely available is not. And I think that's what's so so odd and, and to a lot of people off-putting about the NFT craze. And then, and then also to the question of who benefits, right? Well, in the case of Top Shot, NBA is benefiting. Mm-hmm. And then if that, in the, in the case of Top Shot, the highlight, um, are you buying the rights to the original broadcast clip, which is, you know, happens over television, which is you know, old school television, or are you buying the rights or like- You're not buying, you're you not buying, buying rights. Of, 
You're not buying rights to anything. There's no trend. This is this is this is a really key point, right? There's no like, there's no in, in any of the ones that we're talking about. At least there's not a transfer of intellectual property. Um, whether it's the guy buying Kate's masterpiece tweet or somebody buying a Top Shot NBA highlight, the who the who, whoever owns those broadcast rights continues to own them. Alan, I'm very confused by this, as you can see. My brain is trying to wrap itself around this. So I, I just, I had a, I have a metaphor that might be able to help. You know how in the royal wedding they make commemorative plates? Yes. For like when Harry and Meghan got married and stuff. So like, if you buy a commemorative plate, you can resell the plate, but you don't own that image of Harry and Meghan. You can't resell that image on a t-shirt. You can't say, this is my photo that I took, or I own this photo. You just own the plate. And that is what an NFT is in digital form. You don't, you, it's, it's a plate. <laughs> I mean, it's, again, it, it is analogous to baseball, even though I was sort of drawing a contrast with baseball cards. Just, I mean, Kate's analogy is spot on, but it's also just the same thing as baseball cards. Like, if I buy the Babe Ruth, or let's take a current player, right? Like, if I buy... Um, LeBron James's basketball card. I don't mm-hmm. then get a like, <laughs> you know, I'm not his agent now. I'm not in charge of where who he goes to play for. I don't get a cut of his appearances and commercials. It's just an item that I bought. The Top Shots is the same thing. It's just it's a digital item. Like you could imagine digital digital basketball cards, right? Like it's just like you right. know, hey, you know, physical basketball cards. We're just gonna do this, but it only exists on your device, and we're gonna use the blockchain to. Um, I mean, I guess there'd be problems with like how do you prevent people from copying it. Um, I think that that's like a that fundamentally here. What's happened is that digital technology has made things endlessly and costlessly reproducible in certain categories, um, and this NFT phenomenon, in a way, is trying to undo that and put the genie back in the bottle and impose an artificial scarcity on things like digital, like JPEGs that are technologically, uh, it's definitionally not scarce. Right. Okay. Yes. This is kind of what I was getting at, which is like. In, you know, media economics, right, or around information goods, there are digital and virtual goods, which are theoretically endless. And then there are limited goods, like printed books that we grew up with. And like, thank you, James Hamilton from Stanford University for your class in this that I took. So I thought you were saying he invented books. (laughs) No, no, no. Wait, that that can't be right. (laughs) But but, um, the baseball cards you're describing are a physical limited good. You described having 10 baseball cards. There are only 10 in the world and you have them. And then, yes, you don't like own the rights to that photograph of Babe Ruth, but you own those cards. And so now what people are doing with NFTs, if I'm understanding the way what both of you are saying is that they're they're basically applying that idea of scarcity to goods that are in theory infinitely replicable. Yeah, it's it's and not to make this all about the NBA stuff, um, but no, keep talking. I, I love the well, NBA. I keep talking. I mean, about just it. to just to prepare for the show, if you can believe that I prepared, um, <laughs> I I was poking around on Top Shots, and I'm like, like I'm an NBA fan, so I've heard people talk about it, but I didn't really know what it was. Um, and it's really the the promotional language they use on the site is really funny because they're like they talk about like oh these are rare and and especially valuable or, or language to that effect and they're just you know they've just invented that i mean it's like it it it's it's so pure and distilled in a way um you know it, it, i think i think most collectibles happened somewhat more organically throughout mm-hmm. history of people valuing them prior to them becoming like a financial asset. And what we're witnessing now is that whole thing just happening at once. It's all compressed. It's like, here's this new asset. 
I'm telling you these ones are more viable than those ones. Like, please buy them. And people are. Kate, is this, uh, is this going to die down? Or are we looking at something that's really, that's, that is the future of how we buy and sell media? I'm incredibly bad at predicting the future, but I don't think that this is the future of how we buy and sell media. I think that it will probably not die out, but die down and maybe rear its head. I mean, here's why it's hard to answer that question. I do think a lot of this is is speculative assets and people, it's connected to the whole cryptocurrency world so intimately that I think it like really depends on how prominent Ethereum and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies become. Um, in like 2017, this thing called CryptoKitties came out mm-hmm. by a Canadian um, firm called Dapper Labs. Dapper Labs is now the lab that partners with the NBA for Top Shots. And um, this was like around the time Bitcoin had its like first big peak and people were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on CryptoKitty NFTs. It was like the first rush of NFT. And when I heard about that, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Like, I did not think it would last. I thought it was a flash in the pan. It seemed like a flash in the pan after it died down in 2017. Um, But now here we are. And the CryptoKitties ended up being the tip of the iceberg of this whole new world. So even though it continues to blow my mind that people are spending money on these, I also don't feel like I'm in a position to say that it's just a a fad. I don't know. What do you guys think? Kate, I actually have a story due that is kind of weighing on me. Can I pay you a crypto kitty to to write that for me? Do you have one? (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll acquire one. (laughs) They're worth like $200,000 a piece. Are they? Really? Yeah. (laughs) That's an expensive story, Galad. Yeah, I'll have to reconsider this offer. (laughs) I'm kind of flattered that you think my my editorial or ghostwriting rates are are worth that much. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. I mean, you know, you sold your tweet for $500 worth of uh, of Ethereum. And, you know, just to put that in, you know, we're talking about things selling for way more money than that. But just to Mm -hmm. put that in context, when I was a freelancer, I would do freelance stories for digital publications and get paid you know, a good rate was $400. So you got paid more for your, let's face it, fine, tweet, than we would, than we have both probably gotten paid for actual freelance stories that we've done in our careers. I literally have written freelance stories for $60. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I just have to say, Kate, I think your tweet was excellent, not just a fine tweet and absolutely worth the 0.3 ether you got from it. And also we should note that Wired has since banned us from selling our tweets for you know, understandable ethical reasons. I'm actually, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, and, I'll, and I, I hope our bosses are listening. I think that's baloney. I don't see any reason <laughs> why we shouldn't be able to monetize our tweets. I mean, like, I play saxophone. I'm allowed to go play a gig, and Wired can't say, like, I'm not allowed to make money playing saxophone. Well, I guess maybe they could write that into my contract, but it's not in there. Um, I don't see why a goofy tweet is something that we can't monetize on the side. Well, Twitter is supposedly going to roll out a service for people to monetize their tweets in a more direct way very soon. So maybe you'll have to experiment with that and, you know, ask ask forgiveness, not permission. No, but you're forgetting, Lauren. The problem is my tweets suck, so I can't really monetize them. (laughs) All right, let's take another quick break and then we're going to come back with our recommendations. And I'm sure Galat is going to stun us yet again. 
All right, Kate, as our guest of honor this week, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is a book that I spent uh, a long time last night reading. I haven't like stayed up reading a book till 1am for a while. So I was just delighted by how good it is. Um, and it's Kezio Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun. Wired actually did ran an interview with him recently. So people should check that out. But you should also read this book. It's a really amazing story about um, like a humanoid robot who is the caretaker for a girl in a near future dystopia. And it's funny and sad and lovely. You know, that's the second recommendation this week I've heard for this book. I um, happened to tune into a talk with Gia Tolentino from The New Yorker the other night, and she recommended this book as well. Kate, have you read Ishiguro's other novels, The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go? Never Let Me Go is one of my favorite novels. So I, I was definitely sort of primed to enjoy this one. But it's nice, it's nice when a book actually meets your high expectations. That's an awesome recommendation, and I'm definitely going to add that to my reading list now. Galad, hit us with it. So I know that you have come to expect uh, sort of unorthodox recommendations, but since I'm subbing for Caloria, I have a kind of basic one. Oh, um, no. If you're subbing for Caloria, it's going to have to do with, like, pickling your vegetables or some kind of, like, obscure well, fungi, like... This true story, the other day I went to San Francisco to drop something off to Clory, and I um, I asked to use his restroom, and he let me use it. Um, I mean, this is kind of a dicey proposition in a pandemic, right, when you ask someone to use their restroom, but he graciously let me in, and he stayed outside, and we were masked, and the whole thing, and there He's was... Sorry, sorry, Lauren. Are you clarifying that he stayed outside the bathroom? <laughs> no, he stayed outside the apartment. He left the apartment while you peed? <laughs> Wait, this is this is too much information. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say he had a magazine in his bathroom for ordering fungi, like mushrooms, like a mushroom catalog, not the psychedelic kind. Like I don't think, um, like actual, just like yeah, here are like interesting mushrooms. Like yes, it was so on brand in like <laughs> April of of the pandemic, like early pandemic 2020. I was like, I'm going to grow my own like edible mushrooms, and I ordered. This like brick of something. It's called substrate from Etsy. And it was supposed to make mushrooms if I sprayed it with water every day. And it just smelled really bad. And it never made mushrooms. <laughs> so I'm going to leave that to Kalori. <laughs> now you know. I'm sorry. We, we kind of got off track here. But you said you were going to give a Kalori-like recommendation. So I was no. throwing out my recommendations for your recommendation. Please I just continue. meant a normal one. But I'll, okay. So I'll give one on-brand and one okay. off-brand. So on-brand, okay. If you're, you know, getting ready to make a cocktail, here's a cool little move I just developed. Like 20 minutes before you want to have your gin cocktail or vodka, um, slice up some cucumber and pour the gin or vodka into the glass of the cucumber. Just walk away. Walk away. You come back 20 minutes later and it's infused. Okay, so it's a quick infusion, quick cucumber infusion. You can do it anytime. You don't have to think that far ahead. Um, and then a more, then, then another one, uh, um, sort of in, um, in a nod to the nice spring-like weather that we're having here in DC, I want to recommend a, a lawn game that you guys may have heard of called Kube, spelled K-U-B-B. It comes from Sweden. And it's, it, it's in the underhand toss genus of lawn <laughs> games, but it's it's way more interesting 
than just than cornhole because the the basic gameplay is that you're tossing. You can you can play one on one. You can play two on two. It's you can play three on three or four on four, whatever. You're tossing. Uh, you're underhand tossing wooden batons and trying to knock down wooden blocks on the other side on the on the opponent's side of the field of play. And what makes it extra fun is that when you do hit the wooden blocks, your opponent has to toss them back over onto your side, and wherever they land, you prop it up, and that becomes a target that they have to hit. And so the field of play changes throughout the game, which keeps it, you know, which means that every game is somewhat unique. And and anybody can play. Like You don't have to be a super athlete. Um, you're just tossing a, a baton forward. Eventually, you just, you're going to hit something. And how many people per team? Well, I've played with Three on a side, two on a side. I think probably three three on three is a really good number because at least different brands make these. But I've seen kits come with um, with six batons. So um, you, if you're if you're three on a side, everybody gets to toss two each round. But you could you know you could you could play with up to six people on each side, and everybody just gets to throw one. You could play one on one. It's very fun. I have played Coob, and I love Coob. It's great. Hell yeah. And you know, some people, you know, if you're still waiting a couple of months for your vaccine, as many of us are, you're going to want some activity to take advantage of the nice spring weather uh, until you're until you're able to go get loaded inside a bar again safely. So, this is a this is a good option for that. <laughs> um, but if you're if you're a novice at it, does that mean that you're a you're like a coob cub? I thought you were going to say coob noob. Coob noob, that's even better. See, this is why you need to come on the show more regularly. Well, now that I've permanently replaced Calore, we can do this every week. And glad do you want to ask me my recommendation? Mike and I go through this every single week, by the way. And then one of us goes, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to ask you. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to ask you. Lauren, pray tell, what's your recommendation this week? <laughs> I feel like this is one that you will really appreciate. In fact, both of you might, since you're both on the East Coast. The other day... There was just a blasphemous article in the New York Times that claimed that California makes the best bagels, um, better than New York bagels, which, like I said, blasphemous. And then there ended up being a subsequent conversation between me and a few other folks on Twitter about East Coast, West Coast food in general, and pizza came up. And it reminded me that the best pizza is not actually in New York. It's not in California. It's in New Haven. So my recommendation this week, in honor of Galad being my co-host, is New Haven Pizza. What's your favorite New Haven pizzeria? You've got Pepe's, Sally's, Modern, Bar, and then Upstart uh, next to Modern on State Street, Dalenya. I would probably say it's between Pepe's and Sally's, the old stalwarts. And there's also now a Pepe's in Fairfield, too, which I know is not quite the same as going up to New Haven and waiting in line, you know, for spot and tiny little restaurant. But um, you can get your Peppies fix, you know, in a different part of the state now. So, yeah, I guess I'd probably say Peppies. It's just, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. Kate, have you had New Haven pizza? When I was 17 and I went to Yale for a Model United Nations conference in high school, I had it. But I don't remember what pizzeria we were at because I was too busy being a huge dork. <laughs> well, if I could be a huge, pe- I could be a huge pizza dork for a second. Um, New Haven pizza is interesting because it's really thin, and so I find that um, 
when I lived in New Haven, I found that uh, it was kind of inconsistent. And I learned why, because I went and did a story when I was a cub reporter about a New Haven pizza place. And it's really thin, and it spends a very short amount of time in a rip-roaring hot oven, maybe a 1,000 degrees in there, a wood-burning oven. And so that plus the thinness means that if you underdo it by a few seconds, it'll be floppy. And if you overdo it by a few seconds, it'll be kind of burnt and crackery. So the window to, for it to be really perfect is quite short. And you could go to the same pizza place and get a better or worse pie just based on how long they left it in the oven, which, you know, is sort of on the one hand, a negative that it's less it's potentially less consistent. But it's also kind of cool because it really makes you respect the craft. Right. Yes, I completely agree. And also the sauce. It's delicious. It's often sweet sauce. The pies are very saucy. Um, and, you know, you get some pizzas. I don't want to call it Chicago here, but, you know, you get some pieces that taste more like cheese pies. I'm sorry. Right? Like, literally I'm a like Chicago cake. I know. I know. <laughs> I just I realized as, as soon as I said that, I was like, oh, no, I should not have brought up the C word. And Kate, we accept your apology. No. Okay. Chicago thin crust pizza is what people eat in Chicago, and it's incredible. New Haven level good, I would say. And deep dish is just Ah. like, I mean, I'll have a piece of deep dish once a year, but we all know that it's a casserole. We're not kidding ourselves. We just, we have our secret thin crust pizza that we eat. So So you're you're kidding everyone else. Yeah. Right. You're directing all the tourists to Lou Maldonado's, mm-hmm. but you are going for the thin crust. Yes. Respect. <laughs> Total respect. And also, after this pandemic, I'm going to fly out and visit Chicago again, and I'm going to try the pizza you're talking about. I'll take you, because I'm moving there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We have so much to talk about. I, I wasn't sure if that was official, but now we've announced it on the podcast. That's right, listeners. If you want to hang out with Kate Nibbs, just go meet her in Chicago. Yeah, that's, that's where right. she's moving to. And now Kate's going to tell everybody her address. <laughs> that's right <laughs> journalists have no concerns about that these days Mm-mm. um all right well this has appropriately gone off the rails as i like it to do in the last segment of the show so thanks to you both for joining this was really fun thanks especially to kate for being not only our guest of honor today but first time in the gadget lab we need to have you back on more frequently i loved it thanks for having me and glad thank you so much for being such a great co-host and like i said just let's keep that between you and i until calori gets back and we, we break the news to him the key thing is that we have to figure out how to not cut Calori in when we sell this podcast as an NFT. I don't want to share my cut with him. But how is he going to afford his mushroom habit? All right, we'll have to talk about that. All right. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter where we will not be selling our tweets. Um, Just check the show notes. But we really do love your feedback. I also sometimes go through the podcast app, look at your comments, want to hear from you. So yeah, send us what you've got. And this show is produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth, as always. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.